Hiya, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. And this is quite a week. In a couple of hours, I'm going into the LSE to, to actually talk to students in a room face to face for the first time in two years. And I'm like a cat on hot bricks. Will I remember how to talk to people in 3D? Will I understand people when they've got masks on? How will I remember their names when I don't have the little Zoom name on screen? It's, uh, oh, it's going to be so exciting. It's also been a fantastic uh, week because this is my favourite week of the year for working for Oxfam because this is when the Davos report comes out, which is the report we do every year on inequality and it's become a bit of an institution. And it's, it's, you know, it's the time when I feel proudest of Oxfam in terms of its impact. So two of the four posts this week are about Davos, so I'll get onto those uh, in a minute. First of all, um, started the week with links I liked and more good news. Gosh, this is a good news week. Chris Blackman, who is the daddy of development blogging, has uh, stopped blogging about five years ago and um, it was a huge loss. He's a, he writes beautifully, really interesting thinker at the University of Chicago now. Um, and I learned a lot about blogging from him and just reading his stuff and uh, met him a couple of times and uh, he's a great guy. He's back. He's back blogging. This may not be entirely disconnected with the fact that he has a book coming out. Um, I don't care. It's just great. Um, and his, one, you know, his first few blogs uh, are, are right on point. Um, his first one of the ones which I put in links I liked is should you work for a government you disagree with, which is something which is certainly uppermost in the minds of a lot of people in development departments in the UK and around the world. So um, good news on that one. Right, let's get on to Davos. So the first post on Davos was um, by Oxfam's Anthony Kamande, um, who's based in Kenya. And he, this is the sort of basic introduction to the report. So I'll just read what Anthony says. Um, in the informal settlement of Kawangware in Nairobi, my good friend Joe is quarantining in his small room after contracting COVID-19 for the second time now. He is a nurse in one of the private hospitals in the city. The contact intensive nature of his job means that he cannot work from home. But for now, the virus he has contracted is not such a big deal for him. He's more concerned about his financial situation, which has deteriorated severely since the pandemic hit, in part due to rising costs of essential services. What infuriates him even more, he says, is the stories he hears from the media of the company's mouth-watering profits, including the private hospital chain where he works. He is deeply frustrated the companies are making a killing as their workers become poorer by the day. But he's thankful he's still got a job. Hundreds of thousands of Kenyans were rendered jobless by the pandemic. Indeed, the richest 0.003% of Kenyans have become richer in the past two years of the pandemic, according to data from WealthX. The wealthiest two Kenyans, two people, now own more wealth than the poorest 16 million people in the country. Joe's situation and the wider economic impacts here in Kenya are also a snapshot of what's been happening in much of the world. The past two years of the pandemic are the best ever for the world billion world's billionaires. They have seen their fortunes skyrocket. The graph on their wealth resembles the graphs we are used to seeing about the exponential spread of the Omicron variant. The 10 richest billionaires, all men, have seen their wealth more than double, from 700 billion to $1.5 trillion between March 2020 and November 2021, so that's 18 months, according to calculations done by Oxfam based on Forbes billionaires. 
they now own six times more wealth than the poorest 40% of the global population, some 3.1 billion people. Yet the pandemic has battered the world's poorest and most vulnerable people the hardest. I see that every day here in Nairobi. I think of my mother back home in the village. How can I explain to her the sheer scale of the wealth owned by these rich people while ordinary people continue to suffer? Everyone has suffered apart from the super rich. It's in the United States where the billionaires had, especially, uh, had an especially good time. The world's biggest economy created 126 new billionaires between March 2020 and November 2021, and their wealth increased by an eye-popping $2 trillion. In Asia-Pacific, billionaires saw their wealth rise by $1.9 trillion, or 72%. It's not that these billionaires have suddenly worked twice as hard or invested twice as wisely during the pandemic. Rather, they have massively benefited from an expansive fiscal stimulus by governments in wealthier countries, coupled with lax monetary policy by central banks. The brilliant vaccines developed in a record time rallied the stock market and billions of public money were pumped into the development of these vaccines. This government's money has driven stocks to record highs and with it the fortunes of the world's richest. And then Nancy goes on to discuss climate change. Billionaires are massively contributing to climate change, but it's the world's poorest people who are being hit the hardest by its negative impacts. The 20 richest billionaires are estimated to be emitting 8,000 times more carbon than each of the world's poorest 1 billion people. And as the billionaires start rocketing to space, this will worsen. Yet they've gained so much that they don't even need rockets to go to space. We have calculated that by merely sitting on their wealth, that could take them there. If the 10 wealthiest men were to sit on their combined fortunes piled up in a US dollar bill, they would be halfway to the moon. I love these kind of killer facts. They're great. This increased concentration of vast amounts of wealth in the hands of the, of the tiny few at the expense of everyone else is an economic catastrophe. But I also believe it is deeply immoral. It hinders the elimination of poverty, reduction of inequality and investment in public services like health and education. It also destabilises democracies through political capture, sparking civil unrest and it erodes public trust in institutions. And then Anthony talks about some of the things that could be done about it. One he focuses on in particular is tax. It's time to deal with this billionaire variant, which is what Oxfam calls uh, this phenomenon rather cleverly. One obvious way to do this is to make the richest pay more tax. One effective way of doing so is through a progressive wealth tax on the richest. Wealth tax is not something out of nowhere. It's been done before. An annual progressive wealth tax at a rate of 2%, 3% and 5% for the wealth above 5 million, 50 million and above 1 billion respectively could raise huge amounts in many countries. In Nigeria, this protects progressive tax is enough to more than double government health expenditure. It could nearly triple health expenditure in India. Nigeria and India have some of the lowest health budgets in the world. In my own country, it would raise $0.9 billion a year enough to reduce households' out-of-pocket health expenditure by 85%. The United States would raise $928 billion a year, enough to increase the federal government health budget by nearly a third. Between them, the EU and UK would raise $480 billion, enough to quintuple their combined 2020 aid. Because of the failure to tax them adequately, many of the world's richest are actually paying lower rates of tax than ordinary workers. 
Their secretaries and drivers are paying more tax than they are. It's simple common sense to turn this around and make them pay their fair share. Very good. Third post, we took a break from Davos. Um, I had a, a coffee with uh, a friend called Ayesha Khan uh, last week, and it was so interesting that I asked to come back and make a podcast about it. And she kindly agreed, and we did it in my kitchen, which was fine, except the cats kept coming in and out of the cat flap. But I couldn't, I couldn't hear it on the playback, so hopefully that's okay. And this is about being a feminist academic, a secular feminist academic in Pakistan. But we were going on to some other topics too, like open access and why both open access and being able to do PhD by publications, a sort of late career PhD where you base it on what you've already published, are both really important parts of the sort of decolonizing academia agenda. I'll just talk about the first bit about being a feminist academic in Pakistan for reasons of space, but do it's a podcast so you can listen to it after you listen to this one and i also did a transcript so it's up to you how you absorb it but aisha is great and i really do recommend it she works for the collective for social science research in karachi pakistan and her her book came out in 2018 which is the women's movement in pakistan activism islam and democracy so here i did a partial transcript it was too long to do a whole transcript here's aisha most of my professional life, I've heard from detractors, both in Pakistan and internationally, who say, oh, you know, it was a small elite feminist movement. What did it ever really accomplish? And on the face of it, sometimes it's hard to say because the status of women in Pakistan remains so compromised. That motivated the book, but also my work since the book, because of the women's movements, movement activists' engagement in politics, there have actually been a lot of gender equality policy outcomes. I wanted to trace how that happened. Then activists in other countries can say, hmm, under governments that are not too democratic or inclusive, how can women's rights activists still make a difference? Then I asked her a bit about the history. So she said, under the dictatorship of General Ziel Haq in the 1970s and 80s, he brought in a lot of policies under the name of Islamicization that were discriminatory towards women and religious minorities, such as the blasphemy laws or the Zina laws that ban sex outside marriage. It's been really hard, but the women's movement has since been able to push back against some of the worst aspects of these laws. Since 2020, we've had reforms of the Zinner laws and most importantly, on laws about electoral space. We now have an expanded, expanded gender quota for women in all legislative assemblies. So this is a sort of South Asian thing where you actually set a quota of the number, the percentage of women who should be uh, the percentage of, of representatives who must be women. That really made it possible for women to air their voices in policy making. They managed to push through sexual harassment laws, laws against customary practices, such as the exchange of girls to settle tribal disputes, laws against acid crimes and honor killings and so on. If you open the spaces for women's voices, things are possible, but it's not possible without strong feminist leadership. So then I said, okay, you, 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 know, you passed loads of laws. Does this actually make much difference on the ground? That's a good question because many people say that a lot of these laws are still to be implemented. Honor killings are still happening. And even though the courts are now taking a stronger stand against it, domestic violence is still a problem. So what's the point? Sometimes we ask ourselves the same question. But the story from the women's movement is that we saw in the 1980s when new discriminatory laws came into force under the Zia regime, they changed society. Social norms became more extreme against the rights of women. 
So we saw the impact of laws, and that is one reason why the women's movement has been so focused on changing laws. And we've seen that laws do change norms. There are no women in jail for adultery today. Before, there were thousands. The rate of acid attacks against women has really dropped. And then I said, OK, um, so tell me a bit about being a secular feminist academic in Pakistan. And here's our issue again. The problem is that over the last 30 years, talking about secularism or human rights has become branded as anti-Islamic, bordering on blasphemous. The definitions of the words have become confused and clouded. One result is that many feminist academics, especially the older generation, who started their careers in the 1980s wanting to become academics, responded to the increasing restrictions by moving out of academia and opening their own NGOs and think tanks, through which they conducted their own research. In the last 10 to 20 years, private universities have become stronger, and there are many more opportunities for young academics. But even there, students complain about my lectures on secularism and feminism, and you wonder how safe these spaces really are. Other professors have been denounced for secularism and therefore liable to charges of blasphemy. There are always extremist students on every campus. There are professors in Sindh and Punjab provinces who are in jail under the blasphemy laws. But I also find that students are hungry to hear another narrative. You cannot tell how somebody is thinking from the way they're dressed. I've had students in my class in full burqa with their faces covered, who are progressive feminists at heart and want to know more. I try to give, the give them the feminist language to critique what we saw happening in Pakistan that may also help them question their own lives. Then we got on to talk about just how difficult it is to be published in Pakistan. She, her book came out three years ago in the UK and she's still not got it published in Pakistan because the UK publisher is just really unwilling to give her the rights so she can find a publisher, which I think is outrageous. Um, and the she's doing a PhD by publication, which I also did, which are these great uh, uh, forms of a PhD where you, where you present 100,000 words that you've written and had published and then you reflect on that and your PhD is about sort of self-critique and I think it's absolutely brilliant. It's really a shame that so few institutions do it, so few universities, and they tend to limit them for current staff and I think there's a huge case, especially for researchers in the South like Aisha and she makes that case very powerfully in the blog. Next post, last post of the week, I went back to the Dallas report and I sort of looked at it as an artifact. You know, why is it, what makes it so good? Let's try and sort of unpick it a bit. Um, and I honestly think that these annual reports have helped push inequality up the public agenda. Really hard to prove, though. I mean, think what else has gone on. The Occupy movement. Big books by Thomas Piketty, Branko Milanovic, uh, and the actual fact of rising inequality. So, I mean, absolutely impossible to prove attribution and probably not worth trying. But let's look at what's good about this report, from my, uh, yeah, in my view anyway. First, the style. So the lead author is Nabil Ahmed. From Oxford. These are all Oxfam authors. And there's a team, uh, Anna Marriott, Nafkoti Darby, Megan Lauthers, Max Lawson, and Leah Mugahera. And I love the writing. You know, it's that combination of precision and passion. Sometimes I struggle with keeping the passion. I'm getting a bit old and jaded, I think. Um, and it's great to read something which is really... Um, motivated by passion and anger, but is really well written. So I think that's, uh, you know, combining passion and precision is a rare and wonderful combination. Second, the format. Nice, punchy executive summary, maybe a bit long, eight pages, but it's accompanied by lots of highly tweetable summary infographics. So maybe that 
has taken the place of the very short exec sum now. Um, the report itself is 48 pages. Maybe people won't read it, but they'll know it's there. The, you know, it gives solidity and confidence to the activists so they can refer to it and they, yeah, they know that Oxman hasn't made it up. You know, you can look at the 321 footnotes if you really want to. And if that's not enough, there's a 22 page paper on the methodology in particular behind the killer facts. Um, and the killer facts are great. Here's a sample of them. This is not a full list. The wealth of the 10 richest men has doubled while the incomes of 99% of humanity are worse off because of COVID. Inequality contributes to the death of at least one person every four seconds. 252 men have more wealth than all 1 billion women and girls in Africa and Latin America and the Caribbean combined. Really good to see the attention to both gender and racial inequality, which is growing with each of these annual reports, which started in 2013. Um, I'm particularly keen pleased about the gender stat because there are some absolute nonsense gender stats saying, you know, women have 1% of wealth. And I actually tried to find the source of these and it turns out to be basically made up. So I want to go back to the people who came up, did this stuff, which looks much more, much better sourced and get a kind of updated version of a, because it's really hard to prove wealth inequalities of gender when people live in the same household, for example, when women and men share a household. How do you divide up wealth then? So it's a, yeah, methodologically a really tricky question. So it would be nice to get that going. Anyway, uh, I digress. And these killer facts are a lot of work, okay? There's a whole team of unsung hero researchers doing this. Uh, not a, okay, global campaign, big bash, big splash, even though Davos is not, you know, has been postponed. The media work was fantastic this year. But we also did hundreds of killer facts on inequality at a national level for 66 countries. And that got national debates going because, you know, as uh, Anthony said in that first blog on Davos, yeah, if you can show that two people in Kenya have the same wealth as 16 million poorest people, you get in the national press pretty quick. So that's done very well. Um, it also shows the importance of alliances. So, you know, we've worked both with the Fight Inequality Alliance, which is a sort of set of grassroots movements around the world, but also with the Patriotic Millionaires, a name which I love, uh, which is a, a growing group of super rich people from different countries who demand more taxes. Turkeys really are voting for Christmas. And had Davos gone ahead in person, there were plans for Abigail Disney, granddaughter of Walt, to lead a protest with pitchforks outside the conference itself. And from a journalistic point of view, that is the ultimate man bites dog. Millionaire outside a millionaire's conference with a pitchfork demanding to pay more taxes. I love it. Um, and the press works phenomenal. Uh, I mean, 11,000 media hits. I'm not quite sure what that media hit is, but you know, it, it's all over the world. And you know, it definitely makes a big splash. So what impact does all this have? I mean, we've been doing this for about a decade. I think the first one I could work out was 2013. Um, and that actually didn't make much, um, much, make much difference. But over the years, they've got inequality, I think, into the Overton window, which is this concept in social science of the window of legitimate public debate. Um, and that these big, bold messages are, are most effective. And the inequality campaign has been brilliant at these. I suspect fewer people will read or be influenced by all the solutions and the arguments about taxation or whatever. It has to be there, if only to respond to journalists and others who say, well, what would you do? 
But even if the honest response to that is, well, we're pointing out the problem, it's down to other people, those people we elect to fix it, you have to give some ideas to show that you're credible and have thought about it. Um, so as I say, that 2013 report, maybe it was a bit too wonky, a bit too difficult, didn't really cut through, as they say these days. But that changed with the following year, the 2014 report, which came up with the now legendary killer fact that just 85 people owned as much wealth as the poorest half of humanity. And I was um, uh, in Oxfam at the time, and it just went crazy. It went absolutely crazy in terms of media interest, political interest. It dominated Davos and has continued to dominate the Davos meetings in the years since. And there's a brilliant piece of work. I, I linked to the post about where that, that killer stat came from. And that the difference that made is that you could actually put faces to it, to it. You could say, look, these are the billionaires who own as much as half of humanity. And subsequent years, we, we did the same calculation and the 85 went down to six. So you could get them in a golf cart. So yeah, the, the chances of, yeah, and as social media grew, the chances that, yeah, the opportunities for, for making the most of all this with um, infographics and tweets was just went up. So it's a great job. Uh, I'll be recommending it to my students on the uh, course, which starts today. Um, and thanks for the case study, guys. Uh, I would be interested in what other people think of the report. Obviously, I'm massively biased because I work for Oxfam and I'm, I'm close to the people who wrote the report. Um, but do let me know. I'd be very interested. And on that massively positive note, I'm going to go and prep for my students. Talk to you next week. Bye.